U.S. Customs and Border Protection sometimes faces distrust, even antagonism, among citizens and non-citizens that their officers encounter. To help ease this problem, CBP created a new position called Senior Community Relations Manager. The person taking that job is Noar Shora, who joins me now. Mr. Shora, good to have you on. Good to be here. And, you know, reading just the general headlines and the general news, you would think it's Immigrations and Customs Enforcement that has the tough job here dealing with the public and with other law enforcement, local communities. How does U.S. Customs and Border Protection fall into that category since most people think of them as just people you got to get your liquor by at the airport? <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a fair question. I believe there are a lot of people who don't quite understand the distinction between the varied components within the Department of Homeland Security. So we are all part of DHS. CBP, ICE, TSA, Coast Guard, we're all part of DHS. And the role ICE plays that people are usually very visible to is is the kind of detention and removal of of people outside of the country. TSA gets thrown in because TSA, of course, is at the airports or leaving the country. CBP's role is at the airports only at the ports of entry when people are coming in, flying in, or crossing a a land bridge from Canada or, or Mexico. And within that world of CBP, the two large components are Office of Field Operations, the blue uniforms that you see at airports, and Border Patrol, the green uniforms. So the blue uniforms are at the ports of entry. The green uniforms are anywhere between the border, between the ports of entry. So that's the actual border. you referencing bringing our liquor through or, or agriculture. That's part of it, absolutely. But it's also a number of other factors, of course, that the officers and agents are checking. And did any particular incident or set of incidents or maybe some particular hot spot in the United States spark creating this position of community relations manager? It's always Everything's always connected. My understanding is varied leadership was meeting with constituents, particularly in the northern border. We often focus on the southern border. And there was a push, namely from the so-called post-9-11 communities, to have a almost so not so much a one-stop shop, but one primary contact to help serve as a point person for outreach, stakeholder engagement, but also training and better informing our officers and agents. And just by luck, that that dovetails with my two-decade career. Yeah. Tell us about yourself. How did you come to this particular job? Certainly, certainly. The short, short version is I was born in Syria 45 years ago and grew up in small town, West Virginia, and uh, graduated law school in 2001. As you can imagine, you know, everything that happened in the fall of 2001, 9-11, of course, priorities changed. And I spent the first decade after 9-11 serving as a civil rights advocate, civil rights attorney. During that time, I did a lot of work with the very three-letter agencies and state and local law enforcement on what I call cultural demystification to better understand the post-9-11 groups. My my simple formula has been in existence since then, communication plus understanding equals trust. And, And I've tried to take that with me everywhere I go professionally. After about a decade in the civil rights sector, I joined the federal government at TSA, actually, first in the civil rights realm, than in the national security realm. And so what, I, what I'm proud of is that my, my two-decade career is at the intersection of civil rights and national security. 
And the overlap there is greater than it appears, actually. Interesting. We're speaking with Noar Shora. He's the Senior Community Relations Manager at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And so what's your main task now? Who do you have to deal with? What measures do you expect to be taking? And you probably have to promulgate this throughout a very far-flung organization. You personally can't be everywhere all at once. Correct. And so I am based out of CBP headquarters in Washington, D.C. I come out of the commissioner's office, and that allows me to have a certain level of autonomy across the country with, again, a focus on the northern border. But obviously, wherever there may arise an issue, I'll pursue that. And and my charge is pretty simple. My charge is twofold. On the external front, it is to expand and enhance community outreach where needed, kind of a community policing approach to CBP. It doesn't mean things are bad. It doesn't mean things are broken. It just means that think there's always room for improvement. And so I partner up with everybody from the directors of field operations, the, the, the top SESers in the field, to chief of staffs, to chiefs, to actual supervisors at the ports of entry. Whomever I need to work with, I'm happy to and able to work with. And on the internal front, it's assessing our skills and abilities as officers and agents. I'm not an officer or an agent. I'm, you know, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an attorney, but our officers and agents and assisting them with enhanced training where needed, particularly this cultural demystification training that I've done now for, for a while. And it's stuff that we can always stand to do. It's stuff that in their usual normal training isn't always part of it, right? When they're at FLETC, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, they're bombarded with all sorts of different skill sets and responsibilities to learn the the culture and the history and the geography and the norms and mores are often something that they have to learn on the job. And so this is where a lot of the work I'll be doing more of within the agency. So for example, cultural demystification, I guess early after 9-11, maybe people, just to put it crudely, thought anyone leaving a mosque must be a terrorist. And so what you need to do then is make people understand that, no, that's not how it is, not 99.99%. That type of thing would be under cultural yes. demystification. Yes, so that would be part of it. So a lot of it, and again, I've done this now for over two decades, I've, I've seen tens of thousands of audience members in, in my seminars be they local and state or federal law enforcement, be they college professors and deans, be they churchgoers and and so forth, there's a hunger to learn because there is a vacuum. We don't know so much about these communities still. You know, 21 years after 9-11, there's still a lot of mystery. And yes, we cover things like, we'll explain, we'll demystify Islam. What is Islam? People don't realize, a lot of people don't realize, of course, how similar Islam is to Judaism and Christianity. It's part of that Abrahamic tradition, we cover linguistic terms. What is Allah, right? Allah is a linguistic term that means God. It is not the Muslim God. It is the same Judeo-Christian God, whether you say Yahweh or God or Dieu or Allah. So little things like that. But for officers and agents, we also will explain things like, you know, appearance, for example. Let's say for uh, local police, we're, we're training them on just appearance. I tell them, you get a call on your cruiser, be on the lookout for a Middle Eastern looking male crossing the Safeway parking lot. Who are you looking for? And, and I look at that stereotype, right? And they, they answer a certain way. Most people will answer a certain way. And they're looking for olive dark complexion, dark hair, you know, scruffy beard, maybe traditional garb. But then that can be accurate, but that's not necessarily 
capturing the entire image. And the uh, I use a lot of analogy in my seminars. And so you say Latino, and an image may pop into your head of what a Latino should look like, right? And maybe it's me. I get Puerto Rican a lot. <laughs> but if we go on the spectrum, right? <laughs> if, if we go on the spectrum of color, and, and I hesitate to do it this way, but we often think in that way, Latinos go across the spectrum. You've got very fair-skinned white Latinos all the way to very dark-skinned black Latinos. Brown, olive, you name it, right? Same goes for the Middle East. Same goes for the Arab world. So to help kind of de- literally demystify so much for the audience members is essential. Again, behavior, history, geography, religion, all these little things. And, and it's done in a, uh, in a lighthearted way. I've had, I've had people say you take a very intimidating topic and you disarm it with humor. And, and that's by design. I think we learn and retain more if we're having fun. And if I've got you laughing, then I know you're paying attention to me. So sure. that's the second part of my charge is the internal enhanced training where needed. Come to think of it, as someone who is Jewish from Eastern European descent, I've been taken for Italian all my life, so I guess it crosses any way, any way you can look at sure. it. And do you have measurables? Is there a way that the program that you're embarking on, is there a way of measuring outcomes of it? Yes and no. When I was doing national security work, how do you prove that we prevented a bad actor from committing something, right? The absence of a negative is that a positive? The metrics there are harder. And so with with this position, yes, the positives will be things like literally feedback from the communities we serve saying, thank you, we feel there's a more transparency, quicker feedback, quicker responses, less problems. You know, one thing we've heard time and again from, from across the agencies, not necessarily only CBP, is rude and unprofessional behavior, right? If we can just have our people do a better job where needed, if needed, in, in welcoming people back home, right? In not having a bad day and, and with the reality that people have bad days, but how to deal with it in, in that respect. Sure. A lot of it will be the feedback from the communities as to the impact we are having. I've been on the job now for about two months and I'm pleased to see that so far, the feedback is positive. All right. Sounds like important work. We're glad you're on the job. Noar Shora is the Senior Community Relations Manager at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, sir. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all but, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. 
And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense. 
And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.